Hey everyone, welcome to We're Still Standing. You're going to hear the life stories and experiences of young people who have been caught up in our juvenile justice system. Many of them have had really rough childhoods. All of them have spent time in lockup. The good news is they're still standing. You'll hear about how they found the hope, the strength, the faith to step into a better future and how they stand for every youth in every facility. Growing up with a tremendous amount of neglect and abuse, Lena felt both unloved and unwanted. Her story powerfully illustrates many of the risk factors that land kids in our juvenile justice system. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another podcast of We're Still Standing. And uh, today we have a difficult topic looking at some of the contributing factors that lead kids into eventually ending up in the juvenile justice system. There's the adage, hurt people hurt people. When you experience a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma, it comes out in different ways. And uh, having worked with kids in the system for now more than three decades, more and more I'm convinced that nothing comes from nothing. People don't just end up in this system or whatever crime or situation might have brought them in, there's a lot that comes under it. And we know a lot about just kids who are in the system. For example, 86% of kids who are locked up say they've either been shot or shot at. Two-thirds, 67%, say that they've witnessed somebody being killed firsthand. And they're about the same rates of PTSD as people coming back from Iraq in different wars, except it's not a post-traumatic stress. It's, for so many, an ongoing traumatic stress, which is worse. 72% report having been abused physically, sexually, ritually. I think the number's higher than that. That's just who report it. 70 to 80% have been diagnosed with some sort of emotional, mental diagnosis. And much of that comes from things that have happened to them. Well, today we're going to talk with Lena, who is a survivor, far more than a survivor, now works with youth who are coming through the system. But uh, she's an example of somebody who came up through and exhibits a number of the things we've already talked about. So thanks, Lena, for joining today in this podcast. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me here. And so when you look back, Lena, now as an adult, married with kids, working with girls who are coming out of the juvenile system, you have a whole different lens. But if you kind of get back into the skin and the mind of Lena when she's just a child and now can see it from this perspective, I just begin to describe in some sense what it was like for you growing up or when you first started to feel uh, maybe the world's not a safe place or things started to look more bleak to you. At the time, you probably, you know, it's just normal, so you didn't see it. But now looking back, where you think things started to take challenging roads for you? Um, it started when, um, you know, at the age four, when my mom, um, she was diabetic and um, she was, I think, I believe eight months pregnant. And she had to go to a hospital and give birth early <clears throat> to my younger brother. And I just remember her being on the phone with my dad and uh, with them yelling back and forth. And uh, she said she doesn't care. She's going to drop me off. And, um, and my guess is my dad is telling her no. And, you know, he was the only person that my mom had 
you know, for me to go to. So just a feeling of um, not being wanted and just remember that day when her roommate um, lied to me and said they were bringing me to the store and they dropped me off in front of my dad's house and see how my stepmom and my dad was sitting on the stairs with their heads down, just knowing that I was not wanted there. And um, that's like the earliest memory that I can remember, feeling unwanted, um, not loved. So your dad lived in a different town. Your mom was... No, no we live in the same city. Okay, um, but you hadn't had much of a relationship with No, him. my... <clears throat> well, Ashley, the funny thing is I do have the memory of remembering that. Um, so before my stepmom came to U.S., um, you know, my dad, my mom, and I, we were living in this apartment. And from what I heard from my mom was that my dad lied about going on a business trip and he came back with my stepmom. And I just remember that day when my dad walked in with my stepmom, it was a day that my mom and I had to leave that apartment. And um, so I don't remember moving from a different apartment. Uh, my mom was renting room and I just remember her saying that, oh, I was a very bad child. So we would get kicked out one room to another. So we would move to different places all the time. And um, yeah, so I remember, you know, we, my mom and I had to leave because my stepmom was there and you know, my dad and my stepmom was married before my mom met my dad in the United States. So just remember that and then remember going to my dad's house knowing that my dad doesn't want me there because obviously my stepmom doesn't want me there. Um, it was just not a great feeling and, you know, um, and then my mom met a guy who got us into an apartment. He was like her Superman. He was her, you know, everything um, because he was giving her something that my dad didn't give her because my dad basically, you know, left us behind. And how was he to live with? You know, um, it was tough because, you know, my mom was, I don't, I'm not sure how long it took for his true color to come out, but I just remember when I was like in kindergarten, first grade, was when like he became really abusive to my mom. Um, if she cooked something that he didn't like, he would toss it on the floor and made us clean it up. So um, at that age, between like five on until you know I became a teenager, I was very terrified. Um, you know because he just I I feel like he has bipolar. He get ticked off quickly, um, and he was just a really scary mean person. So I was called a mute child when I was young because I would never talk. I would never smile, I would never talk, and I would just basically keep to myself. And um, not only that, I felt like I had a lot of responsibility as a kid, like, you know, I was watching after my brother, um, you know, my mom would leave us home by herself. Um, so it's just like, I felt like I was a little kid, but at the same time, I felt like I had to be a big kid um, with all the responsibility I had to do around the house. And your mom's just trying to make things work. She's got a guy that yeah. In her mind, Superman. Yeah, because not only that, she didn't know how to speak English. Mm. So he was the one who taught her how to drive. He got her mm. a car. He got her. He got us into an apartment. So like he had helped her to how to live in America. That's what it was. Yeah. And um, you know, with her not speaking any English, like he taught her all these stuff. Um, and then you know, when I was like around eight, we move into the project. Um, and then we moved to a whole different town, but it, it was just tough, you know. Um, think about the time living in that apartment in Dorchester. Um, it was like not a good apartment. It was invested with mice. I was scared. I was terrified. I didn't have my own room. Um, and then we moved to East Boston, which I had my own room, but then 
you know, it went from living with mice to living with roaches. Um, and, you know, it was not a clean environment. It was not healthy at all. So the, the stepfather, was he good to you or how, how um, did he treat you? He was, you know, he, we, we didn't have like a father and daughter relationship. Um, he favored my younger brother more because, you know, in the Asian culture, almost in every culture, they always favored boys more than girls. So I just felt like, you know, um, like I didn't have any value. I mean, nothing to anybody because I was a girl. You know, mentioned that a lot of the kids in the system and kids that you work with have experienced abuse. Has that been part of your story too? Yeah, um, you know, like my mom would hit me if I was bad. Um, you know, like if I did something that that ticked them off, they would hit me. They wouldn't hit me out of nowhere. But like if my little brother did something and then I get the blame for it, I get hit for it. Um, but I just, you know, another thing was I discover as I get older how when I was like seven, eight, I was in second grade and um, I try to get attention in school by like cutting myself with a paper clip. But then, you know, as I got older, I realized, okay, it was a kid that needs attention and love to the point that I was trying to get attention. I wasn't purposely hurting myself, but I was trying to get attention from my classmate or whoever. And then I got sent to the mental hospital. And then, you know, from going to the mental hospital, I was, you know, my parents told me like I was crazy, uh, there's something wrong with me. And then, you know, my mom told me, basically lied to the system, like there's nothing going going on at home, you know, I don't tell them what my stepdad is doing to my mom. So I was taught at a young age to like basically keep things to herself because if I tell them these things that they were gonna take my siblings away, they was gonna take me away. Um, and as I'm talking, you know, uh, I remember my mom, like it was shortly after my dad and my stepmom, you know, basically kick us out. And I remember my mom was trying to get my dad attention by trying to commit suicide. And I just remember her um, being rolled out by the, the ambulance. Uh, but she wasn't gone for that long. I just remember the session that she, she had to go to, you know, therapy or whatever. I'm not sure it was DMH. Um, we didn't get taken away because, you know, it was me and my little brother. Um, somebody was watching after us. It wasn't that long. But I do remember that my mom did something like that and tried to get my dad attention. And then, and then, like I said, as I got older, I discovered why I did what I did to go to a mental hospital because I, you know, was missing that love and attention, that care as a kid. So I ended up showing that up in school. And um, yeah, and then from that, from the mental hospital and then around the age nine, eight or nine, before we moved to East Boston, that's when I got molested by my mom's friend that was living with us. Um, I was very confused because my mom never taught me you know, about those things, about like body parts, you know, not to let anybody take advantage of you and things like that. So I was confused about that too. I just know that he was giving me attention, but I was still confused and kind of scared. Um, and then when we moved to East Boston, I started skipping school in the fifth grade. Um, and the only reason why I skipped school is because I felt like, all right, I wasn't smart enough to be in school. At the same time, I get to be in my, um, where we was living in East Boston, I, get, I got to have the peace that I needed because when my parents get home, it's a lot of screaming and yelling, and um, I just didn't really, didn't like being home with them, so I would skip school just to be home, or I would skip school just to sit on a train, flying back and forth all day until it's time to go home. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's a lot. So what, what do you think was going through your mind then, five, six, eight years old? As you look back, what were you thinking huh. was wrong? Or, or you know, what, what was going through that little girl's mind and what was she feeling? A lot. I was very confused. And honestly, sometimes I wish I was white because you see, you watch on TV, you see white families all together, united. And, you know, um, my family didn't celebrate holidays. So, like, I always wish, growing up, wishing that I was white. I was, I wish that I was born into a white family. Because it was like, you see a white family, it's like almost like a picture perfect of a family. That's what a family's supposed to look like. So, like, I was always confused why, you know, we are the way we are, the, our culture, why we're different, why is my parents like this and that. So I was very confused, and I always wish I was white, like I was born into a white family. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, you know, we think about kids are vulnerable, obviously. It's, that's the nature of being a kid. You're dependent, and you develop healthy bonds with your parents and adults that are supposed to take care of you. So family is generally the, the first safety net that, that catches kids. And your family was stressed. Your mother came here, you said, from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your father as well. So this is their first kind of experience in this culture. They obviously weren't equipped to have kids, and you were the oldest of the children taking care of your younger. You, you felt like you had to care for them even when how old were you when you felt like you had to kind of be the mother for your younger well then my mom had my youngest brother in how old is he now in 1998 so then um you know when I got to middle school because growing up I didn't really have cousins I didn't really have uh, any kids to play with so I didn't really have that and then when I got to middle school you know I became kind of popular um, you know, with my peers because, you know, I try to do these things to, you know, to be part of a whatever, who knows, you know, and, um, and then like that was taken away from me when I was told that I need to come home right after school to watch my brother. And, um, so I felt like, okay, more, I didn't get to be a kid. So for that reason, I started to run away more, but then around the same time, that's when my stepfather started molesting me. Um, so I, you know, I was very confused. I had a lot of fear. I was scared to tell my mom. Um, and I would run away. I would run away and I would hung out with people that was probably lost too. Probably didn't know that yet. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> we was, I would hang out with gang members. I would, you know, try to smoke and drink and try to, you know, fit in with, the, with my peers. Yeah, so when you started to feel like you finally did fit in, with your peers, you said they were negative peers, more or less. But how old were you, and what were you being accepted for at that point? Well, I still didn't fit in because that wasn't me, you know. Yeah. Um, being out on the street wasn't me. Um, trying to do all these things wasn't me. And I always reimagined, like, if I came from a good family, you know, um, and at that age, I would have been staying home. If I didn't deal with the stuff I was doing at home, I would be at home. I'm more of a homebody than be out there. And, you know, I put myself in a lot of unsafe situation when I was out there. I was dealing with people. And the reason why I had to deal with all that because I was trying to get away from the stuff I was facing at home. 
And then like I dealt with, you know, with people who wanted to fight me, people had jumped me and beat me up badly. Um, and, you know, it's just, it was not safe. It was not a good feeling being out there. It was not good to be vulnerable for people to take advantage of you. And uh, it was not a good feeling. And I, but I'd rather have that than have what I had at home mm. um, within your own family because then, you know, these people, whatever harm they do to you, you don't see them. Your family that you come home to, you deal with them every day for the rest of your life. And I'd rather not. So I will put myself out on the street and deal with nasty people, but at least I won't see them ever again or I won't be seeing them every day, you know? Um, so that was tough. Yeah. It's like you're putting yourself in a, you know, from a negative environment at home to put yourself in another negative environment. Well, you know, we think about families being a safety net. Yours wasn't equipped to be for all kinds of reasons. Your parents coming here from Vietnam, first generation. Then you hope that the school might be a safety net for kids who are struggling at home. How was school for you? <clears throat> school was tough. Like, I didn't know how to read. I didn't know how to write until the age 16, until actually when I got locked up. Um, I always been good at math, but it's just like, I didn't care. I, the reason why I didn't care is because there was no future for me. There was no light for me at the end of the tunnel at that time. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know what I was good at. You know, I look at my kids and my kids is like, oh, I want to be a police officer. Oh, I want to be this at this age, right? At that age, my future was blank. There was like no hopes of thinking about what do I want to be when I get older? How do I want to live my life? It was like, if I was to think of any of that, it would have been like a fairy tale from a picture or from a movie that you see that I feel like it was impossible to do. Um, you know, it was like a fantasy. That's what it was. And, but I had no idea. I had no idea what is it that I want for my life? So you didn't read very well because you, no. you grew up speaking Vietnamese in your house? Yeah, so like um, like I mentioned before, I was called a mute child. So like I just never talk. Yeah. So I had to start learning English. Like I was born here, but I had to learn English in third grade. Uh, my mom was afraid that I was going to lose the language if I went to like an all-American school. So she put me in a school where I has bilingual class for Vietnamese. So like I was trying to learn what I knew and not really care about the English part. So like after second grade, um, when I went to the mental hospital, my mom was embarrassed. So she put me in a, in, um, in a different school. That's when I started to learn how to, you know, speak English. But... Even then, after that, I'd hardly speak. I didn't really talk. Mm. I was always been quiet. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think could have made a difference back when you were starting in school if, if somebody had noticed? Um, that, you know, if the school can have somebody who can pay more attention and try to understand why this kid behaves a certain way and will work with the family, um, that's, you know, make the family comfortable enough to, to be aware mm. that, okay, this child is acting like this because of what's going on at home. Because it all comes from home. When a kid is acting up in school and then having a hard time, it comes from home. You know, um, there's a reason why they behave the way they do. You know, um, 
So, you know, you always have to trace back to home what kind of environment they're living in. If a kid can't pay attention because they've been moved around so much because, you know, a kid needs to be in a place, in one place, not move around. And if you have a kid that been moved around, going to different school, been introduced to a different teacher, different classmates, how do you expect a kid to just adapt quickly? You know, even adults have a hard time with adapting to a new place. So just imagine a kid, a little kid being put into a place that that's new. Like I, I went to three elementary school, you know, uh, from kindergarten to second grade. And then in third grade, I, w- I was in that school for only a year. And then um, there was this lady there. She was my special ed teacher. I will never forget her name. Her name was Linda. And um, she was so kind to me. She was my special ed teacher. She brought me gifts. Um, she brought me snacks um, during the time that we spent together doing reading and math. And she was like, I would never forget her because she was so kind to me. And mm-hmm. the, I think because she noticed, I don't know what, what, what it was, but she was giving me something that my parents didn't give me. Like she showed that she cared, that she thought of me. And that's something I didn't have at home. So Linda was kind of the first person who really noticed you yeah. for who you were. Yeah. And how did that have an effect on you at that point? Um, it was nice. It was nice to have somebody like that. But, you know, I only went to that school for a year and then I went to another school in East Boston. So it was really nice at that moment, but I can't really tell you how I felt at that time because it has been so long, mm. you know, it was so short, but she was somebody I would never forget. Yeah. Yeah. When did peers start to play a role, like other kids or um, negative influences? And- like after fifth grade, um, you know, fifth grade I was skipping school and then sixth grade is like, I don't know how kids are nowadays, but in going to sixth grade was like the coolest thing, going to middle school. Oh, I can't wait to have a boyfriend. Oh, I can't wait to be popular. Oh, I can't wait. And then like trying to follow the trend, smoking cigarette, drinking and stuff like that. So um, I wanted to be cool. You know, I, I thought that if I couldn't really get what I want at home, at least I can try to be cool at school and try to show that I'm a badass or something. So um, that's what it was. It was my focus, trying to be cool, try to be tough. Um, I. I you know, it took me a while to try to figure out how to be tough because I was not really a, I was not an aggressive person. Um, I wasn't the type of person to just go start fights with people. Um, and yeah. And so how did that happen where you learned to be tough? And Well, I had to learn that because, you know, I was getting beat up by the kids in the project and then like the gang I was hanging out with, other girls wanted to fight me. So I had to find a way to be tough. Um, it's like, yeah, it, I had to find a way to be tough because they didn't be tough then people just going to keep on thinking that they keep on fighting me. So, you know, um, I joined a gang and I had a few girls that had my back. We was a little gang. It wasn't a lot of girls in it, but we was known to people. And yeah, I was known. Lena was this and that. And um, so I wanted to be known that I was tough so nobody would mess with me. And you were how old when you got in that gang? Uh, I think it was like 13 or 14, but 13. I wasn't in it for that long, you know. But when you're 13, 14, and you're running away, you're watching your back and trying to figure out the next place to sleep, those couple of years seems like forever. So 
you ended up in the juvenile justice system. How old were you there and, and how long were you in? Um, so the very first time I got locked up is when I was 13. Um, and the only reason why I got locked up is because um, I got caught for stealing while I was on a run. And um, so I didn't give them my real information. And um, so they ended up locking me up. And then when I went to court, you know, my stepdad told me to told them to lock me up. So I was there for like less than a week. I was terrified. I said I wish I'd never go back to that place ever again. But you know, I ended up going back to that place again when I was 16 and pregnant. So you were pregnant when you got locked up the second time? Yeah. And how long were you locked up for? Um, I was locked up for four and a half years. Um, you know, I ended up, you know, got committed um, to Department of Youth Services till I was 21 for a manslaughter charge. Um, you know, I accidentally stabbed my um, son's father and he passed away. Um, so that was very tragic and, you know, confused. I felt like at that time, before I did all that, I felt like, you know, having, being pregnant and then being the person that I loved, that I felt like he protect me, that uh, my life would be better. And that was like, you know what, I'm gonna finish high school, I'm gonna do all this to try to give my son something else different than what we had. Because my, um, my son's father, he went through a lot too, you know, in the system and all that. So we both kind of had the same history and we wanted to give our kids something else different. So um, I was devastated that, you know, I took the love of my life and that we had a future together and that was gone. And I felt like, I should be gone to that. I should be dead. And like, I woke up every day and wanted to die. When you are pregnant, you're locked up, your life looks like it's, it's, it's coming to an end. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it can get. Um, what, what was that like when you ended, ended up first in that place and then how you be, maybe began to find hope in um. there too? It took me a while because at that time I was so lost. I felt like my life was over, but you know, thank God for these women that came into, you know, the Department of Youth Services, volunteering their time to do book club, to do Bible study. And, um, you know, I met women who are my mentor for the rest of my life, had give me hope, had given me light, and you know, taught me about God and showed me something else different. And they showed me something different that I never had growing up. And um, I wanted to see more. I wanted to live more. And, you know, even though my mom was not the best mom, she fought so hard to not let me do life for 15 years, you know, in adult jail. So she did what she had to do uh, for me just to be indicted to Department of Youth Services till I was 21. Um, so from there, you know, I wanted so bad. I wanted so bad. Whatever I had to do to make it right and get out and live again, that's how bad I wanted. It's, I'm willing to do whatever I had to make those possibilities to happen. And what? how did you shift in how you began to see who you were while you were in that place? You, you mentioned people came in and led Bible studies and book clubs and saw something in you, you began to see something different in even your own mother. Uh, how did that process start to happen where, you know, you, before it was Linda, who was a special ed teacher, and is this the next time that there were positive people yeah. around you? Yeah, so um, 
sad to say it takes me to be in a place like that to meet great people um so it was weird because i never really had that before it was very weird but i accepted it because it was a good feeling to have you know it was feeling something there and i'm not sure what at that time but it was feeling something that i lacked of for most of my life until i got in there um so they gave me hope and light where i was like you know what let's try and having these people in my life helped me to see that impossible things can happen mm-hmm. and that anything is possible as long you put your mind to it as long you know you have the hope the support and the strength it will build up to where you feel like okay i have enough power to make it out so that's the way i was seeing it and i needed that lift from you know these great women i had in my life to to get there mm. and i think without that I would have been more blind. I would have been, you know, got out. And if I had nowhere to go, I think I would have go back to my parents' house. Then that would have been not good, you know, um, because my parents are still toxic, um, just the way they see things in life, um, you know. So I had to find a way to get out. I had to find a way. How can I work where I'm at to get out and live my own life, my own ways, without my parents? talking over me, talking down on me, or telling me I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I had to find a way to do that. So um, by having these women, by opening my door to these women who had helped and lift me and give me hope and light and teach me about things I never knew about, helped me to have that set of mind of saying, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I don't, I'm gonna do it, I don't care what people's gonna say about me, I don't care how people don't look at me, I don't care if there are people who don't believe in me, at least I have some people that do believe in me, and that's all it that matters. How's God played a role through all that? Where have you seen Him um, in your life? Well, God had played a role in many ways. Um, learning to let go, learning about forgiveness, um, knowing that He has a plan for me, that I believe that, you know, he, I felt like God always been there. You know, there was bad stuff that was happening but he always been there and try to save me out of the bad stuff. And, you know, sad to say, like, what I'm saying about myself, I know these girls have been through much worse when it comes to, you know, sexually abused. You know, I've been molested, but I've been raped. And I know girls who have been through that. And it's just like, I can't even imagine if I'm scar going through what somebody have done to me. I could just imagine what other, you know, women are going through in their life the fact that they've been raped or whatever. But God has been protecting me and I know that um, that he has a plan for me, that he's using me for a purpose. He's using me to tell my story about something I have done. And there are girls who have done less, way less. Their trauma might be way worse and they have no idea how to get over that and move on with their life. And um, so the level of you know my, my, my charge, I could have used that in ex- you know, an excuse of not to live again. I could have used that an excuse to not be my, a mother to my kids. I can use many excuses in my life, but I choose not to. Um, instead, I use God because I know God has a bright future for me. He has things planned up for me already. He knows what to do with me, and I believe in that in 100% that as long as I remember that and I put my faith in Him, that it doesn't matter what people say, what I have done in my life, in my past, that I'm past that. You mentioned about God 
giving the strength or power to forgive. What, what's that process been like to forgive? Um, definitely not easy. Um, but then you think about wanting to forgive. You want people to forgive you from something that I have done in my lifetime. But then at the end of the day, it's like, it's with God, you know? I go to God and I ask God, can you please forgive me? Like, I forgive myself for what I've done. Can you please forgive me? And, and I think that's the main thing is asking God for forgiveness after you forgive yourself. And that opened a huge door to strength over fear. Because when you can't forgive yourself and you don't have enough strength to go to God and ask God to forgive you, you, you can't really expect other people to forgive you. If you, like, I feel like God comes first and you can't expect other people to forgive you if you can't have that open door with God. Because once you have that open door with God, you really don't really care what people say or think about you, right? If they forgive you, they forgive you. If they don't, they don't. But you know what? At least you know God forgive you. Knowing that, like, you know, I had to let go of my, you know, what my mom did, my stepdad did in order to be in their presence. Because I know that my mom would never leave my stepdad. And I'm not going to have my mom if I make my mom pick and choose her kids or, you know, her husband. So I had to let that go that, you know, I can't expect my mom to be the mom I want her to be. Because everybody can always dream and say, oh, I wish my parents were this. Like, we all have a plan. We, you know, we come from somewhere and you just got to learn from it. And then, you know, I also dig deep and learn about my mom's life, how she is the way she is. You know, she didn't have her mom when she was a kid. Her mom died when she was two. She doesn't know who's her father because, you know, she was created during the Vietnam War. So because of God, I have compassion. Because of God, I have sympathy and you know all this they're able to feel and understand okay my mom might not be the perfect mom and she might not know the god i know but because the god that i know he opens the door for me to see why my mom acts the way she does so because of god he opened my vision and my eyes to see things differently you said that when you were a little girl you didn't know who you were and nobody else knew who you were so now, who are you? What do you? What? How have you? How has that changed? Where you you know who you are? I remember seeing God here and there in my life. I just always like, okay, I don't know who God is. I know He's always been there, but at the same time, I used to question God, like, why? Why you let all these bad stuff happen to me? Right? Why? 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 So like, I used to blame everything on God. But then when I started to learn more about God and see what God is offering. That gave me a whole different image of who I am as a person. Because of God, I got out before I turned 21. I was able to get an apartment. I was able to do all these things. I got my high school diploma, which I thought I was never able to get. Um, you know, I end up, I said I wanted to work with kids. He made it happen. Um, he helped me to make everything that I put my mind to, he had helped me make it happen. Um, you know, I got my son back thought that was impossible, impossible. And, you know, I had to kind of, you know, um, serve my mom some papers, which is very uncomfortable for me to do. But, you know, I had to face my mom. My mom ended up going to court me and sign him over, um, you know, and then I got a house um, and then I finished my associate degree. I thought that, you know, I was taking my time at the beginning. When I first got out, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. And then I put my mind to it. I said, God, help me. And he had helped me and, you know, we made it happen. And then, um, 
you know, and then I said, I want to be a real estate agent. You know, I have to stand in front of board members and share about what I did. And because of God and because of people he provided in my life that I was able to do these things. And um, so that's who I am today, you know, somebody who I once felt like they have no purpose until somebody was full of purpose and full of plans that God had for me. So it's just like believing that I'm more than my past. Mm. I'm more than all the broken pieces. And you know what? I might be still broken pieces, but you know what? I shine really bright through those broken pieces. You've had a lot more trauma, a lot more pain than most all of our listeners on this. It, but we all have some, and we, we continue to carry it. You know, it's not like, well, uh, that was then, this is now. Um, it, it goes with us, and God continues to use it to transform us. I think it was Richard Rohr who said, pain, it will either transform you or you'll transmit it. There's no other option. But some of that you know is still with you so how does some of that still affect you today and what are you learning about how to engage it because things that happen to us in our younger formative years they often just still keep coming up doesn't mean they have us in the same way but how does some of that still affect you um it affects me in many different ways it affects me as a mother it affects me as a wife um, you know, it affects me sometimes as a mentor being with my, you know, my young people. Um, because, you know, I, growing up, I was causing me child. Um, so, like, most of my life, I have walked with a wall in front of me. Um, and it's like I have a whole wall, and the way I carry myself, people always feel like I'm, you know, I'm protecting myself. I don't open up too much. I don't talk too much. Um, so that's the way I have shown up everywhere that people are afraid to talk to me because some reason they're afraid and maybe because I have that look of protection of myself because I've been hurt so much. <clears throat> and, you know, even in my marriage, like, you know, communicating about your feelings is something that I have a hard time expressing, like articulating how I feel because, you know, I'm just not a person with words. So. You know, when you grow up and you're all in your head, you're thinking about how you feel, but you can't really describe how you feel. So I have a lot of issues with that, you know, and like, and also being in control because watching my mom get beat by my stepdad. So I always want to be in control. I don't want to be in, I don't want to be in a relationship where the man is controlling me because I saw that happen to my mom, you know, and like growing up, not having a love and affection. So I'm trying to learn how to do that better and be there with my kids by showing them more love and affection. So that's still hard for me, right? Um, so, and then even in my relationship, being affection, that's still hard for me. So it's, it's a lot. What is helping you at this stage in your life? You know, you learned how to cope at all different places and the things come up again. What What's at this stage now as a mother, as a mentor, as a businesswoman, as a a ministry uh, person, you have all these completely different roles. What are some of the things that are helping you right at this place? Every day I try to at least remember five, 10 minutes to myself, mm. lay there, listen to meditation music, and 
I do therapy once a week. Um, I've done therapy when I was locked up and I was not. <clears throat> I was like, I couldn't wait to be done with therapy because, you know, when you do therapy, you're like, oh, there's something wrong with you. You need therapy before you blow up, right? But now with this, you know, COVID-19 and all this stuff going on, you know, being a mother, being a wife, and, you know, like I said, well, all this stuff I came with from, you know, the my childhood, is it comes up again, right? Mm-hmm. It comes up in your relationship. It comes up how you act towards your kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like some stuff I see, I see my parents in me, you know? Mm. Some of the stuff that's like unreasonable. So I feel like um, mental health is a very, very important thing. Going to therapy, having somebody comfortable to talk to, um, help you to be more aware why you react, why you do the things you do. Right to be more aware, so that way, you know, on the time by yourself, you remember those things. Be aware, be aware, be aware. Would you talk about therapy? Be aware, you know, um, of these things. So, <clears throat> yeah, mental health is a big thing, you know. Especially you've been through a lot of stuff, and you think that oh, you know, yeah, you have a house, you have a job, you have your kids, but it's still there. It takes time. It really does take a lot of time to work on yourself, mental health, most important, um, to just really be aware of your, your mental stage of like, okay, where you at in life right now? You know, what what's there you can practice? Because the more you practice, the more you become it. And that's just how our brains rewire. Um, so you have to practice the healthy stuff in order to stay healthy. And, um, and by going to therapy, I think that's like really great to mm-hmm. able to talk about how you feel, about things, you know, because like I said, they can able to navigate where that came from. Yeah. Well, I think now you're, you're speaking to every person who's listening to this. Uh, most of us haven't experienced the background that you've experienced, but we have experienced pain and we continue to need help. We never arrive. Sometimes people think about, oh, here was a person who was bad and then they found Jesus and now they're good. And it just never quite works like that. God is doesn't waste pain, and we're always in process. And the fact that you're able to do the work that you do today with where you are speaks to all of us that that is the invitation. We haven't arrived yet. But I will say, having known you now for, boy, uh, maybe close to 15 years, that you are a remarkable Eleven. woman. Eleven years. Thank you. I know Hannah longer than, okay. than I know you. She's known you 15. Having known you for more than 10 years, um, <laughs> you are an amazing woman. Thanks. And I want to thank you for your willingness to open up these parts of your life uh, for the sake of others to understand the kids that we're talking about. And maybe just to to end with, what do you think people need to understand about the Lenas who are out there at eight or 10, they might be out of their sight because they're not noticing them, or maybe they're starting to act out like you began to at 13 or 14. What do do people need to know about the, the girls and the young boys that they hear about? Well, before you start judging a kid, um, you know, by their 
negative behaviors. Um, just try to have compassion of thinking about what that kid is going through. You know, um, think about, you know, how there's a story behind why the kid react the way they did, right? And I just remember myself being on the news. Um, like, if you was to Google my name, you will find me on the news. You will find me a picture of this 16-year-old girl's face who's pregnant in tears, standing in the courtroom. And that's like, you know, the most humiliating you could put on a kid, right? You're putting their face on the news. You know, you read the news, you, you see that I did this horrible crime, but you didn't know what, what kind of background I went through. You didn't know that I was actually, you know, a victim of, you know, being molested, a victim of, of abuse. You didn't know that I watched my parents, my stepdad beating the hell out of my mom. You know, because I remember reading those comments and somebody was like, oh my God, like that horrible child, like I feel so bad for the child, now he's gonna be lost in the system. My son didn't get lost in the system. I fought to get him back. I fought very hard to, you know. So just remember that, that when you see a kid, you hear about a kid, it's not the kid's fault because the kid's brain is not fully developed to understand anything. They just pick up from what they saw. So when a kid act up, that I don't think they're purposely hurting people is because they're so confused. So just remember that, that you, when you see a kid that is on the news, just have that sympathy of understand, try to understand what's the reason behind that? What's the reason? Everybody has a story behind them. It's our responsibility, every one of us, to stand for children who are in a system that often chose them far more than they chose it. They're out of sight, they're out of mind, but they're not out of reach. And so my name's Scott Larson with the Every Youth, Every Facility Initiative, and thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Straight Ahead Ministries on a mission to reach every youth in every facility with the hope of Jesus Christ. This podcast was hosted by Scott Larson, recorded by Scott Larson and Barbara Picard, and produced by Jen Yokel. To learn more about our work and join the movement to reach every youth, visit www.everyyouth.org.